0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Michaela Yeager, an eating disorder survivor and now a certified eating disorder recovery coach. In the show, Jaeger candidly shares how eating disorders began to emerge at the age of four, how she battled them for years in complete secrecy, and what motivated her to seek help, culminating in Jaeger being inspired to earn her Eating Disorder Recovery Coaching Certification and helping others to find peace with their bodies.
1: As detrimental as this demon was to my, my life and my existence, I it was safe for me. It's what I knew. It's what I felt like I had control over. And to give that up was like giving up everything I'd, I'd ever known.
0: The conversation in this episode references suicidal thoughts and personal experiences with eating disorders that some may find disturbing. Please use your own discretion before listening. You can find help through the National Eating Disorders Association by calling or texting 800 931 2237. The helpline is not available 24 7, but anyone needing help can leave a message or text NEDA to 741 741. Michaela Yeager is an eating disorder survivor certified eating disorder recovery coach, blogger and founder of Bigger Than a Body. Beginning when a child, Jaeger struggled with body image disturbance, suffering with bulimia and from compulsive exercise and body dysmorphic disorder. After more than 12 years of battling her eating disorder in complete secrecy, Jaeger sought recovery help and eventually found herself at full lasting peace with food and her body. In 2022, Yeager earned her Eating Disorder Recovery Coaching Certification and now runs a coaching business supporting others who struggle with eating disorders. Michaela Yeager, welcome to LIVES.
1: Delighted to be here. Thank you, Stuart.
0: Thanks for coming on. I mean, this is a subject that I think is um, deeply distressing for many, whether or not they have suffered personally or uh, know someone that has. Could you give us a sense of the scale of the issue of eating disorders, perhaps with some numbers that are associated with with it?
1: Yes, certainly. Um, So currently, we have enough research to suggest that nearly nine, if not 10% of the U.S. population and worldwide population alone struggle from an eating disorder. Um, That would be about 28.8 million Americans uh, will, at some point in time, struggle with an eating disorder. I do believe that number is likely underreported just for various stigmas uh, associated with eating disorders, uh, lack of treatment, uh, lack of research in the area. So um, I would venture to guess that number is actually higher, but that is currently what the data suggests. And um, I think there's also this other camp of people of the population that falls into the disordered eating space, um, a much larger camp of people. uh, So basically don't meet the full diagnostic criteria of having an eating disorder, but still show symptoms um, that related to those disorders.
0: So basically anybody listening, if you have a group of 10, 20 friends, then it's almost certain that one of those friends is uh, statistically likely to be enduring or suffering from some disordered relationship with eating and and their body.
1: Yeah, it's quite alarming, you know, to think about. I think in our minds we have this idea of what someone with an eating disorder looks like. They're emaciated or they exist in a very large body. But less than 6% of people suffering from an eating disorder are actually medically underweight. So, it does in a way, seem like an invisible illness, much like other mental disorders, depression, anxiety. Um, they are easy to mask, and um, those with them tend to be quite intelligent, stealthy, good at hiding them um, and concealing their behaviors uh, from even those very, very close to
0: them. Has the public narrative around eating disorders shifted along with our other? mental health conversations or is it perhaps lagging behind in terms of stigma?
1: I think, unfortunately, it is still incredibly taboo to talk about eating disorders. Um, For that reason, I think so so many of them do go underreported because there's a shame attached. I think saying, you know, I suffer from anxiety or depression or obsessive compulsive disorder, um, not to say that it's easy to admit to you know, having any of those issues. Um, But for some reason, yeah, we've kind of overlooked eating disorders. Uh, I think it is very delicate to talk about, you know, eating large quantities of food in a short period of of time or um, not eating at all for large, uh, long periods of time. So it's just kind of this this subject matter that feels extra kind of – off limits, and there's just a unique kind of shame around it still, and so um, yeah, I think that's that's a big part of the reason why it is so underreported. How many people are out there struggling simply because they don't even all the time want to admit to themselves that they are fully struggling from this.
0: It's interesting that you talk about unique kinds of shame that are associated with this. And it's got me thinking about what are our cultural attitudes to food and what are our cultural attitudes and conversations and expectations around body shape. I guess I'm curious about your perception of how well-ordered or how disordered is our cultural attitude to food and body type.
1: It's a huge part of the problem. Unfortunately, we are surrounded by tens, if not hundreds of messages every day that suggest the way we look is inadequate. So we exist in this world that is totally rife with diet culture. Um, You know, how you look matters more than who you are. And there's always something about you that needs improving. And we've really normalized this idea that It's okay to want to lose a few pounds. It's okay to, uh, you know, abstain from eating certain food groups because that's what the majority of the population seems to be doing. You know, we're coming out of the new year. And how many people do you know, specifically yourself, who have set a new year's resolution to lose some weight? And so it's just become so standardized um, that it's easy to not see the problem when it's looking at you straight in the face. And so, yeah, what, co- what starts off as a very harmless, you know, I'm going to do Weight Watchers, I'm going to do Keto, can quickly snowball into something much more serious. And before we know it, um, we're suffering from disordered eating and then potentially a full-blown eating disorder.
0: I want to be clear about language and about terms. There are phrases that are commonly heard and reference such as anorexia, bulimia, body dysmorphia. So I wonder if you m- might just explain some of the language that is associated with eating disorders.
1: Yes, you know, anorexia and bulimia I think are probably the two that people are most familiar with. Um, however, there are slews of eating disorders and they're, they vary one from the next. Um, in fact, Anorexia itself, there are two subtypes. There's a restrictive subtype, so someone who uh, refrains from eating for for long periods of time. Uh, they are medically underweight. You know, preoccupation with size. Um, Uh, obsessive-compulsive about movement is is common. Uh, But then there's also the binge purge subtype. So you can go several days or longer without eating adequately, but then you might have one singular episode where you engage with binging and purging your food. And purging also comes in in various forms. So uh, we often think of self-induced vomiting. That's what I personally suffered from. But there's laxative use, diuretics, enemas, um, you know, even exercise. We don't, you know, there's controversy of whether or not we consider that a true form of purging, but it's a compensatory behavior nonetheless. So, yeah, it's um, anorexia to be clinically diagnosed with. You do have to meet that certain criteria of being medically underweight. So, like I'd said earlier, less than 6% of people who suffer from eating disorders classify as medically underweight. So there is a much larger portion of people who struggle with atypical anorexia. So the New York Times actually recently put out an article called You Don't Look Anorexic. And they profiled uh, these different individuals who, at surface level, appear to be in larger or fat bodies. It's just kind of giving some recognition to those who struggle from this disorder in the exact same ways that somebody who is underweight, but they just don't meet that singular criterion. Then with bulimia, there's typically a binging purging component to that. And so to to be diagnosed with bulimia, you must engage in at least one binge purge episode per week for three consecutive months. Um, And so... Binging is also, I think, something that is, you know, somewhat subjective. What one person considers a binge, another may not. Uh, It varies, you know, from person to person. But I think the easiest way to look at it is when someone eats large volumes of food in a short period of time, there's really a lack of mindfulness. It's really done to numb out. Um, You're not really engaging the senses, uh, it's just a way to to cope, uh, get some short-term relief.
0: And your bio mentioned body dysmorphia, so I didn't want to miss that too.
1: Yes. So body dysmorphic disorder is also incredibly common with those who struggle with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, even binge eating disorder. Among men even, we're seeing a lot more issues with body dysmorphic disorder, uh, bigorexia, is a medically recognized and diagnosable disorder. So it's, you know, predominant in young men, but you know, anyone can suffer from this and it's this perception that the body is much smaller than it actually is. So we're used to hearing about body dysmorphic disorder and thinking someone's looking in the mirror and seeing not just a body that's much larger than it, it is in reality, but maybe a specific body part. That they're obsessive about that they deem to be incredibly flawed when in in all actuality it's not as you know imperfect as maybe their mind is leading them to believe but um, yeah so I personally suffered from the full-body dysmorphic disorder where I thought I had so much weight to lose and the real reflection was actually a body that was emaciated and You know, it's um, that stigma, especially with these boys and young men who just are 12 years old and drinking creatine every day, striving to have these, you know, body mass indexes of 3% and it's being hailed. It's being revered. It's like, wow, these athletes, these muscular young men, this is amazing that they can, you know, morph their bodies into being such powerful Uh, figures, but it's also an eating disorder. And then there's the other specified feeding and eating disorders. So again, not meeting that full diagnostic criteria for anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder, but um, possessing some of those behaviors. So I would argue that, again, a large part of the population could fall into that category, um, OSFED, or disordered eating.
0: What was your childhood like and, and when when did the inklings of an eating disorder start to come out?
1: Yeah, um, I recall memories from as young as the age of four. You know, I was, I wouldn't say even a, a chubbier young child. I just didn't fit the bill of the rest of my family who were all very long lean um stock and you know I was a I was a toddler right I was three four years old but um I was coined the nickname fridge uh which everyone you know referred to me as fridge in a very endearing way right it wasn't to criticize but um you know, after hearing it over and over and over again, even at the age of four, I think I connected those dots and thought something about me is different. And I don't think that feels very good. And so uh, I just remember wishing at that young age that my body could be different. And at nine years old, I suffered a pretty serious case of pneumonia and lost um, a significant amount of weight. I was hospitalized for several months. And for the first time in, in my life, that as I could remember it, I felt I'd succeeded. I'd arrived. You know, I'd finally, uh, I'd finally obtained the body that I thought I was supposed to be in. I looked more like everyone else in my family. Um, and then at age 11, sixth grade, I got really into running. I was running with weights strapped around my ankles and developed anorexia. So completely hid that from my family. I was very, you know, just sneaky, manipulative and realized shortly thereafter that this thing called bulimia exists and I don't have to starve myself anymore. I can actually eat and still be thin. Oh my goodness! Like, I'm I'm I've been starving for you know 18 months. What a relief! Um, and so, from the age of 12 through 23, I I hid that disorder. Um, it it just consumed my life and my closest friends, my significant others, my sister whom I lived with. No one knew. I just got so sadly good at concealing it.
0: What is that inner dialogue that a child is having that you are having with yourself to, you know, spark the eating disorder?
1: Yeah, I will say I don't believe that there is one single cause of developing an eating disorder. Um, So I don't want to, you know, fault any of these individuals who so endearingly referred to me uh, with the nickname that they did uh, as being the reason why I developed an eating disorder. You know, there's a genetic predisposition. There are environmental factors, sociocultural factors. All of those things working together is really what makes one person more prone to developing an eating, eating disorder than another. So just wanted to to throw that out there, but um yeah, I think at 9 years old when I had lost a, a scary amount of weight um and was actually very much underweight um and was thinking to myself okay this this is it I've, I've finally gotten the body that uh, my family and others will approve of you know I recall them saying we can't call you fridge anymore and how good that felt and I think for me it was kind of tying together all of the the information all of those influences uh, that I had Consumed in my life up to that point, you know, looking at people on TV, reading magazines, um, looking, yeah, directly at my own sisters who were in leaner bodies than me, and just telling myself that that's clearly what makes you more worthy is when you have a body that fits that thin ideal. And so, yeah, even at that young age, I'd convinced myself that those messages were true and um, so all through my formative years my young adulthood those messages stuck with me so once i started recovery having to unlearn that was like i need to build myself a new brain it was a lot of unraveling a lot of unlearning and it took a lot of time
0: i'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about what were your daily practices to regulate and you know manifest this eating disorder or the eating disorders that you've you've described.
1: Well, recovery from an eating disorder, especially if you struggled for as long as I did, is a long non-linear bumpy process. It's should be expected that it's going to be rife with Slips with setbacks, even relapses. But I think something that's so critical is just continuing to show up, to trust that process. Because even if you say, I'm not ready for this, I don't want to give it up, if there's a piece of you that you can find deep down that says, This life is not serving me well, even if it's for the benefit of somebody else close to you that knows you're struggling and it's causing them immense pain if you can at least enter the process for them ideally yes it'll get to a point where you're doing it for you but just finding that catalyst that launch pad to get you into recovery and then I think sticking with it it really is just not only asking yourself why like you know why do I want this but like for me it was I'm sick of living this double life I'm sick of being deceitful um I don't want how I look to be what I define as my, like, worthy factor of of my being. And so it was like, what am I recovering to? What is the life I want to have? And being vulnerable, you know, I'd, I'd concealed this for so long. And just being able to tell someone and the accountability that comes with telling someone you know, they're cheering you on. They, um, they believe you can do this. And so it's kind of like just every day just showing up and saying, okay, even if I'm not meeting my own expectations, this isn't happening as quickly as I would like it, as I would like it to. Like, I have to stick with this. I just don't have any other choice. I'm going to make this non-negotiable.
0: You've talked about secrecy where people were completely unaware for years that you were suffering this eating disorder. How did you, eat or not eat, how did you um, experience bulimia?
1: Yes, I would often restrict my food. So I think there were definitely phases of my, my disorder where I vacillated between Anorexia, binge purge subtype, and bulimia. I could go up to two weeks at a time sometimes without purging. So that was really actually a disservice that I was doing for myself because I kind of tricked my own mind into thinking that I could recover on my own. Um, But there were so many other recovery sabotaging behaviors going on, like, you know, the compulsive exercise. Uh, the incessant weighing, um, body checking. So but but typically, yeah, I would really monitor my my food intake all day, very militant about it, you know, counting every calorie. And I was very strict about what times I could eat. So all of these food rules that I'd set for myself. And what would happen was my body, my animal brain, just the physiology, the physiological part of myself that was like, you are hungry and you're putting the body in a state of deprivation that is not good. This doesn't feel safe, would drive me to, to binge. So it was that physiological response, um, because my body was just undernourished, um, and I think that's that's so key, too, to recovery is you have to figure out how to eat adequately. And for some people, that starts with, you know, an extra bite of food. Uh at a time because they're used to skipping most if not every meal. And you know, I don't go into numbers with my own story. I think sometimes that can do more harm than good when we say, you know, I exercise for this many minutes or hours a day. I only ate this this many calories a day. I got down to this weight. I think that can be really triggering for a lot of people who could be hearing this and say, "Oh, well, I'm nowhere near as badly. As, I'm not as bad as she was." But you know what? We're all sick enough. If we notice that there's something unhealthy about our behaviors, uh, unnatural, you are worth getting help. You 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 know have your own unique story. But yeah, I think it was just this this pendulum of restriction, binge, purge, restriction, binge, purge, and willpower like I said, could maybe get me a week or two at best without engaging in the uh, binge purge part, but I was still heavily monitoring how much I was taking in and uh, expending.
0: It just seems stunning in many ways that the people close to you, people around you, didn't either notice that you were purging or didn't seem to comment upon how you perhaps were showing up physically and emotionally. How did it get missed? And are there warning signs for listeners to be a little more attentive and observant of those around them?
1: There are warning signs, and I think you know, some sometimes we're better at concealing them than others. Certainly I think there were instances where people were suspicious but you know, calling somebody out for something like an eating disorder is really scary. You know, it's it's you know, almost like you're accusing them of this again because there's so much stigma around it. You know, if 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 they say no, like I can't believe you would you would even suspect this of me. You know, it could really tarnish your relationship. And so, um, but you know, my own sister to to this day will say. I had no idea. And I think what what it was for me was, t- you know, sadly taking advantage of any time I could where I knew I would be alone, um, but also kind of overcompensating. So when I was around people, you know, I was typically the life of the party. And uh, despite how tired I was because I was, you know, it's exhausting to conceal this double life one, but um, there were so many other things going on in my life. You know, I was barely sleeping. I was uh, getting up at crazy hours to make sure I was getting enough exercise in. Uh, My immune system was suffering because I obviously wasn't nourishing properly. And then I was incredibly stressed because I, again, was just trying to keep live I was living a lie and that that was very stressful and so but yeah just um, continuing to to perform really well academically all through middle school high school and college I was very involved in extracurriculars throughout my adolescence and college years as well there was really no reason like from a surface level for someone to suspect that I could be struggling with this and again I didn't fit that perceived image of what it looks like to have an eating disorder people either think oh my gosh you know she's skeletal or somebody in a very large body you know I looked pretty average weight throughout the majority of my eating disorder
0: you don't have to answer this for yourself, but in general, what what are some of the implications either to our bodies or perhaps to the lives we're leading professionally or otherwise from sustained eating disorders?
1: Uh, do we have about 10 hours um, to cover this ground? Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's immense, you know, the, the impacts that, you suffer um psychologically you know i was incredibly anxious depressed suicidal at times but then yeah physically i mean every system of the body you know um like i said my immune system suffered uh i was deficient in iron and uh developed anemia i had heart arrhythmia um i you know, suffered from hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is, you know, it started with irregular menstrual cycles. And then before I knew it, I wasn't mencing at all. So then I developed polycystic ovary syndrome, and that's incurable. Um, So infertility issues. uh, And just my bone density suffered drastically. I couldn't sleep as exhausted as I was from just all of the behaviors I was engaging in, I still somehow just could not sleep. So yes, brain fog was was something I struggled with daily because I didn't have the mental energy to focus. I, to this day, worry maybe, you know, I have, uh, it's called Barrett's esophagus. So it's, um, you know, from all of the acid that had come up during those purging episodes, you know, is the lining of my esophagus? The, the, are there tears in there that could have potentially lead to something like esophageal cancer? There was one scare that I suffered where I thought I was, you know, following an episode or in the midst of an episode. I was either suffering f- suffering from cardiac arrest or a gastric rupture, and I thought, "This is it. This is how I'm going." And um, that was a pretty big wake wake up call for me.
0: I wonder if there was a moment in your head, in your heart when you really committed to the idea of needing help. Um, and, and I know that that journey of recovery is, is a long road with ups and downs, but what was that moment when you actually thought, I, I need to turn outside of myself and get some support?
1: Yeah, it was definitely that moment where I thought, I was literally looking death in the eyes. And fortunately for me, I had a partner at the time who was very caring. He also didn't know. But I was finally willing to tell him. And it was so terrifying. But he ended up finding me help. And that's sadly what it took for me, you know, to, to get to the point of, finding the support that I needed, Uh, you know, the earlier you can intervene with an eating disorder, the much more likely it is that somebody will not only fully recover, but that that process won't be as long as cumbersome because the brain just hasn't maybe isn't as conditioned to behave in these ways. So um, for me, somebody who suffered for as long as I had, that was a very long hard road but um but yeah I I wish not everyone had to experience a rock bottom like I did to get the help that I needed but again I think just my I was a people pleaser I was high achieving a perfectionistic type um and just thought I can fix this on my own it's just a matter of time like okay I didn't get it right today but I'll get it right tomorrow and you just keep telling yourself this false narrative. Um, and so, yeah, I think I had all of the wrong things about me, uh, that kept me just pushing it off. Right. And so it took that kind of life threatening circumstance for me to say, okay, I can't do this on my own.
0: What was that journey like through recovery? And we know it wasn't linear, but what was that journey like for you?
1: as much as i just got done saying that i was finally ready to pursue it i recall my partner taking me to my first therapy session and i was such a brat i was so resistant as detrimental as this demon was to my my life and my existence i it was safe for me it's what i knew it's what i felt like i had control over and to give that up was like giving up everything i'd i'd ever known you know and so i will say that therapist didn't work out and i want to share that because i think that's a very normal part of the process you have to find somebody who you jive with you know there has to be that synergy there so it took me several therapists to find the one that I felt comfortable with, that I trusted. And unfortunately, only about a half a percent of all therapists are trained to treat eating disorders. Um, there are very few here in the city of Omaha. You know, a lot of them will say, you know, I specialize in, in eating disorders, but it's it's not to their fault. You know, um, it's just part of the training, the education that goes into becoming a psychologist or a psychiatrist doesn't involve working with eating disorder patients. And so if and when you can find someone who has that experience, definitely go that route. But then, yeah, I I got a registered dietitian and a general practitioner. The three of them all worked together on my case. And so... I was, you know, in college at the time, uh, coming out of college too. And again, my family still didn't know. I didn't, even once I sought treatment, didn't ever disclose any of this to my family. So I'm working two jobs to pay for all of my own services, um, bouncing around from appointment to appointment. And it got to a point after a couple of years where I was not actively using the behaviors. I was eating adequately and regularly throughout the day. Um I obviously wasn't bingeing and purging anymore. But there was the body image disturbance piece that just was still hanging on. And so even after I'd exited treatment, I thought, you know, I don't think my work is done here, and I found a recovery coach. I was like, what is that? You know what? Uh, Never heard of that, never heard of that before. So lo and behold, this individual, she suffered from bulimia for about 15 years. And um, just being able to consult, to, to talk with somebody who could understand my lived experience, obviously every case is unique. But there's more similarities than there are differences, right? And just um, being able to confide in someone who could even have a semblance of of knowing what I was going through was so reassuring. And so she really helped me f- figure out how to find body acceptance, body neutrality. You know, we hear a lot about body positivity, um, body love and I think those are amazing north stars that we could all eventually strive to get to but that can be that can seem implausible for someone who's entering recovery and totally hates the way they look right so just being able to find acceptance in our bodies um, seeing that they provide us so much on a daily basis just from a functional standpoint not shaming our bodies. So it's not about like praising our bodies, even for every little thing and um, saying, Oh, my gosh, I love this specific part of you. It's more about just let's stop the shaming. And so that really the coaching piece helped heal my relationship with how I felt about my appearance. And also um, that lingering exercise piece where I was still definitely abusing that
0: Is it difficult when you're complimented in whatever way? Perhaps it's about the clothing you're wearing. It it could just be a passerby complimenting you in some way about your image. I wonder if that raises red flags for you, because to be complimented is then to focus on how you present. And I don't know if that's a challenge for you.
1: You know, it's so innate for people to comment on bodies on appearance you know if somebody's noticeably lost weight the first one of the first things that people will say is oh my gosh you look great have you lost weight you know to this day even people knowing the work that I do those comments are being said all around me whether they're to me or among the group that I'm with right it's um somebody's talking about the next diet that they're starting or complimenting somebody on how good they look physically you know and and You know, we don't actually have any right to be commenting on somebody else's body, even if we think it's a compliment, right? Because we're kind of just reinforcing that message that your body as it is now is superior to to the body that you had before. And that person can really internalize that. They hear that. And, you know, we don't mean to be causing any harm. That's not at all the intention. But, Again, those, those normalized, just one-off comments that we make that we don't think twice about can have an impact. And so when they're said to me, and for those listening who don't know me, can't see me, obviously, I am in a thin, privileged body. Naturally, my set point weight, so the weight range at which my body just is meant to be, um, is in a thinner body. So when somebody does comment me on my body, I usually just immediately redirect. I don't say thank you. I just kind of, you know, take the conversation elsewhere. And um, if it is the right context and depending on what the comment was, I might be as direct to say, you know, my body is not for you to comment on. But for the most part, it usually is just redirecting the conversation to something other than the body or the appearance.
0: You talked about how helpful a recovery coach was for you. That is now a calling that you have responded to as a certified recovery coach. And I'd like to ask you what that is and what you do, but to set that up, to explain what it isn't. So, for example, you're not a doctor and you're not a therapist, but perhaps you could explain that a little more.
1: Yes, it's such a relatively new concept. You know, I think people are pretty familiar with sober coaches, life coaches, even business coaches. But an eating disorder recovery coach is something that even a lot of practicing therapists, dieticians are still not familiar with. so we are an emerging just group of warriors, I like to call us, because so many of us have recovered from an eating disorder. And so, yes, we do not replace any one of those key members of the treatment team. Your therapist, your nutritionist, clearly not your your PCP. The therapist is, you know, very much specialized in helping you deal with the underlying issues that could be impacting your eating disorder that could have played a role in the etiology of that eating disorder. Maybe it's past trauma. Maybe it is a co-occurring, you know, condition like anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. Maybe you have autism. Maybe you're dealing with drug or alcohol um, abuse. And so they're helping you really focus on dealing with and unpacking the kind of why behind your recovery. Like, why do I have this eating disorder? What were the elements that contributed to it? And they're diagnosing you. They're treating you. They're using things like cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR. Myself, it's very much focused in the coaching space on the here and now. We're very action and solution oriented. So it's kind of taking the overarching goals that maybe your larger treatment team is working with you on and I'm helping you on a daily basis. So another key differentiator there, coaches are accessible to clients, you know, on a daily basis. So it's, it's usually via text or email in my case. Um, And so just when you're having a moment where you're struggling Uh, There's somebody that you know you can reach out to. You don't have to wait a whole week until your next session. And so uh, that's a huge piece. Um, Just, you know, being, yes, being a cheerleader, but also showing kind of that tough love, nudging them, being that guide. Um, But I think also, yeah, bringing in that lived experience is so critical. Uh, So many people just want to hear from somebody that full recovery truly is possible because, Another unfortunate misconception is that eating disorders are not something you can fully recover from. You're always going to be recovering in remission. And I myself was told that by my first therapist, which is why I didn't continue seeing her. Um, And so uh, I'm living proof that it is so possible. Um, it's, It's actually really wild to me. And I think the most The funnest part about recovery is how much you surprise yourself. These little incremental steps you take each day um, over time, like you have rewired your brain and you don't even consider some of these old behaviors you used to engage in. It wouldn't enter your mind to ever actually act on one of those ever again. It's just, it's it's remarkable.
0: And so if someone was being coached by you what might they expect and what might also be the extended view what might a year look like
1: yeah so I always tell people coming into coaching um that there's no fixed timeline just if you have any expectations right now check those at the door because um we're gonna go at your pace I'm going to meet you where you are in this process and that brings up another point of you know some people say well I don't have a therapist. Do I need to? Do I need to get a therapist? And that begs the question of which one came first: is it the chicken or the egg? Because a lot of people argue that even those working in the recovery space that I didn't develop anxiety or you know have any of these issues, these more psychological um, issues, until I developed my eating disorder, you know, and so. Um, It's very much case by case. You know, we determine what your treatment team, if any, should look like. Um, So I do a free consultation call. I kind of hear what your story is, your history is, your symptoms are, um, and we go from there. But it's, you know, really just we meet for 50 minutes a week. Uh, We can break those up into 25 to 25-minute sessions. But um, on top of that, on top of the correspondence between texting, email. I offer for my local clients. I do see clients nationally, so uh, virtual support nationwide. But you know what? We can go grocery shopping together. We can go clothes shopping together. We can donate old triggering clothes together that you haven't had the heart to part ways with we can cook meals together. You know, even with virtual clients, I've had snacks with them online and, and meals. And it's just, there there are a lot of fear foods, obviously. And those look differently for everyone. But, um, you know, there was one client, I ate spaghetti at like 9.30 in the morning because our time zone difference. But it's just like, I can do that because whatever, like, it's just, I'm not afraid of food, right? There's nothing to fear there anymore. But um Yeah, so it's just uh, exposing them to those what are normally very difficult triggering situations and just being there with them to kind of offer some, some ease to the situation.
0: Given that to get here, you had to go through the traumas that you've been sharing. I just wonder how you've gone about that acceptance, that reconciliation, and how that makes you feel about living into your life.
1: I think there is an element of atonement. You know, it was something that I deeply suffered from. I lived in a very dark place for a very long time, and knowing how insidious eating disorders are, how prevalent they are, they are all around us, and we can't see it. It seemed like a no-brainer for me almost, like this is just what I have to do. Um, I want to not only make up for the years that I've lost for, for myself, right, because I, I was so deprived of just a social life at times and just missed out on so much, but also knowing that so much help is needed in this area and if I can even help hundredth of a percent of the people out there who are needing it this is totally worth it it's it's just so overlooked and people are suffering of of all types too you know I think we have this idea in our heads that those who suffer from eating disorders tend to be white women and that couldn't be further from the truth Uh, eating disorders do not discriminate Uh, people of all Races, um, gender identities, ethnicities, sexual orientations suffer. And there are growing bodies of evidence that suggest, you know, BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, the LGBTQ plus community actually might have a higher propensity to develop an eating disorder than cisgender white individuals. But just again, for other stigmas that exist in the world, um, that also goes overlooked. So I want to help anyone and everyone out there who, who needs it. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you do not have to meet that full diagnostic criteria to work with me to get help. Um, if you are in any way struggling with food, with exercise, with body acceptance, uh, you, deserve, you deserve help and there is a better way to live.
0: My guest today has been Michaela Yeager, an eating disorder survivor and now a certified eating disorder recovery coach. Michaela, thanks so much for being on the show and for sharing both the past but also your aspirations for a better future. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.